Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the judge to be de- for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bond service, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in tonight and be our our teacher, as, as we do every time. Lord, when we open your word, we want to hear from you. And we pray that you would give us illumination and understanding of these things. We know, Father, this book was not intended to be sealed up, but was to, to be unsealed. We know that this is the revealing of what is to come. And so I pray that you'll help us as we move through the rest of this chapter to understand. God, we want to understand so badly, not because we want to get puffed up with knowledge, but because we realize that through understanding of your word comes an acknowledgement of your glory. And tonight, Father, we do acknowledge your glory. We acknowledge your authority that you are the great and glorious King. And God, as we look forward to your coming, we pray tonight that you will give us a taste, a sense of what that day will be like. Teach us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at the two witnesses of the tribulation. Those two prophets clothed in sackcloth, they were called the two olive trees and the two lampstands because they were anointed with the Holy Spirit. You may remember that, that we know they were anointed by the Spirit because in Zechariah chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 we have a really dramatic picture, a graphic picture of these two olive trees that are set up on either side of the lampstand in the temple. And those two olive trees had golden pipes coming from them and oil flowing directly from the olive trees into the pipes, into the lampstand. This picture of anointing, the oil of anointing, and the oil of anointing in the Bible always speaks of the Holy Spirit. And it's a prophecy that talked about Joshua and Zerubbabel, two of the priests that were involved in the building of the second temple. But it's also a prophecy dealing with the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. That dual-edged prophecy. And you'll see this from time to time in Scripture. The prophecy given that has an immediate fulfillment but also has a latter fulfillment, a later on fulfillment, that is the completion of that proper, uh, prophecy. And we see that um, in these two witnesses here that was also seen in the two priests earlier on in Zechariah's day. Now, Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, going back says the following, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So the way that we know it's a dual-edged prophecy is here John comes out and says, oh, and by the way, these are the two olive trees. You may recall reading that back in Zechariah. Well, here is the completion, the fulfillment of this. Now, I need to make a correction tonight. The question was brought up about when these two prophets, these two witnesses, when do they do their witnessing? We know that it's for 42 months, three and a half years. But I said last week, I believe, that it's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. That's not right. It can't be. 
And I went, I, I, it was kind of bugging me, and I was thinking about it, and I went back and looked, and we have a verse that makes it very clear that it cannot possibly be the last three and a half years. It must be the first three and a half years that these two witnesses are prophesying. How do we know that? Look at verse 14. It tells us, and this is after the death, after the resurrection, and after the rapture of these two witnesses, it says the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So all that happens with these two guys has to be before the third woe. Has to happen before the seventh trumpet sounds. That happens in the first half of the tribulation. Okay? So just understand, the two witnesses, they will be raised up right at the beginning of the tribulation period, and during the first half, those first three and a half years, they will prophesy. They will preach the gospel. At the same time, we have the 144,000 witnesses. The first half of the tribulation is a massive outreach, a massive evangelical push on the part of the Lord. And then when you get into the second half of the tribulation, which we'll get to shortly, the great bold judgments, the great tribulation as Jesus called it, that's the time when God is pouring out full wrath and from that midpoint on is when people cease to even be willing to repent. So there's massive soul harvesting, massive people being saved, people repenting in the first three and a half years. They hear the two witnesses, they hear the 144,000. It's after the fact that people begin to be even more hardened and not to repent at all. Now, the seventh angel will sound his seventh trumpet and something wonderful happens that's going to take a bit of thinking through tonight. But first, as has so often been the case, I want to give you some context here from the Law and the Prophets, from the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, three types of positions required or called for a special anointing. Three kinds of positions. You probably know what they are. Can anybody tell me? Three positions that required anointing in the Old Testament. Priests. Kings and prophets. Excellent. Prophets, priests, and kings. Those were the three positions that people were anointed for in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. The prophets were anointed. 1 Kings 19, verse 16. The Lord tells Elijah, says to Elijah, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mehel, of that guy, um, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So Elijah was told, you anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your place. Psalm 105.15 says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So the prophets were anointed. Okay, secondly, the priests were obviously anointed. You all know this. Exodus chapter 40, verse 13. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me, and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generation. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And, of course, kings were anointed. And we're going to come back to that thought in a few minutes about the anointing of kings. But listen, both the Hebrew word and the Greek word for anointed are very interesting, in fact, very familiar to us. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. It's where we get our word Messiah. Mashiach, Messiah, simply means anointing one. In the Greek, it's Christos, or Christ, the anointed one. So Mashiach in the Old Testament... Uh, Christos in the New Testament both the anointed one Christ the anointed king the anointed priest the anointed prophet keep that in mind look back at verse 15 the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. What's happening here? And it's important to understand this. We're still at the midpoint of the tribulation period, right at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is the coronation of the Anointed One, the coronation of Christ. This is a grand and glorious coronation. It's heralding the coming of the Anointed One, the return of the King, just as the Old Testament prophets prophesied and declared so long ago. Keep your finger here and go back to Psalm 2, the second Psalm. Psalm chapter 2. It's a great passage, just worth reading through. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, describing this same event, this coronation of the great king, says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, his Mashiach, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, literally kiss the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord's anointed. This is the prophecy of the Christ. David's writing this about the coming Mashiach, the one who is anointed, the one who will reign, the one who is coming to reign, and his anger will judge the entire world when he comes. Flip back over now to Isaiah. Go to the right a bit. Isaiah 61. Starting in the first verse, Isaiah 61, verse 1. You may recognize this. This is the prophecy that was read and applied to Jesus by Jesus himself. He quotes it in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. We'll read Isaiah's version. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has mashiached me, literally, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, Jesus, when he quotes this, stops right there. But it goes on. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of, an, of, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And if you read on through Isaiah 61, again, the coronation of the king, what the king will do as he comes into his throne and into his power. Jesus, when he shared this, when he read this, was in the synagogue in Nazareth. There right next to a mountain, Nazareth actually sits up on a hill. 
And just to the right of it, if you're looking across, in fact, if you would stand on Mount Carmel and look across, as Cheryl and I got to do in Israel, you look across there and there's Nazareth up on a hill high up. And to the right, there's a, a sheer cliff face, a drop off. It's called Mount Precipice. And that's the place that the, the Jewish people in the synagogue, when they became furious about Jesus applying the prophecy to himself, drove him out of the outskirts of the city and tried to push him literally off that cliff, off that precipice. Why would they do that? Because Jesus Christ declared himself, quoting Isaiah 61, as the Mashiach, the anointed one. The anointed king, Messiah, the one who would come, the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus said, it's me. And the Jewish people said, uh-uh. Of course, Jesus pressed the issue a little bit. He also said the Gentiles are going to get it. He points the way to the Gentiles, saying they're going to understand, they're going to be saved. And that completely sent the Jews off the deep end, and they tried to push him off the deep end. But powerfully, we're told that Jesus just walked right through them. You can read that, and some people say, what, did he just become invisible? No, I think, I think the authority of God was so powerful on Christ that he just said enough and started walking and nobody touched him. Well, Jesus, the Mashiach. You might remember, by the way, the famous gifts of the Magi. Speaking of prophet and priest and king, they apply so well here. Matthew 2.11 tells us that they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Speaking of Jesus' triune role as prophet and priest and king. How so? Gold is easy. Gold for a king. Frankincense, also easy. Incense for a priest. Myrrh would be for a prophet. Why myrrh for a prophet? Because Jesus is the anointed prophet. Think about this. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses said, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Jesus is the anointed prophet. How do we know? Well, Jesus prophesied many things, but one of the most powerful... One of the most powerful descriptions that Jesus ever gave was the end-time prophecies of planet Earth. Matthew 24, Mark 13. He very clearly delineates what will happen and what will come. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now you might say, and let's take for a moment the role of the skeptic, the cynic, and say, yeah, but how do you know? How do you know what Jesus said is going to happen, will happen? In fact, how do you ever really know if anything prophesied by a prophet is legitimate? I mean, I've heard of that guy, Nos, what, what's his name, the prophet guy? Hmm? Nostradamus. Nostradamus, who prophesied certain things, and, and people are so excited when something even relatively close to what he prophesied comes true, and yet many of what Nostradamus proclaimed would happen never happened. How do you know if a man is a prophet and how can we believe this Jesus and believe that he truly is a prophet? Well, listen. It's easy for those of us who believe in the deity of Christ. Because we believe, hey, he's God. Of course he knows what's going to happen. And understand this, and I've said this before, I will keep saying this, I want this drilled into all of our brains. Prophecy is not what might happen. It's what has happened from the eyes of the Father. God standing outside of time, not bound by time, has seen it all happen. So what he gives us, what he shares in scripture, is not possibilities, it's what happened. It's what will happen, there's no way around it, it's going to happen. So when God tells us this is what's going to happen and we see it happen, no doubt, of course it's going to happen. He's seen it happen. That's prophecy. It's not just some kind of, you know, loose, oh I hope that this will occur. Now, indulge me for just a moment, using some foolish human logic, 
and think through this profit aspect of Jesus. For the Lord tells us exactly how to measure the legitimacy of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 21. I think we can even apply this today. And by the way, if anyone gets too warm, just walk out there and turn the thing off, okay? Don't make me tell you to do it. We'll just leave it at that. Deuteronomy 18, 21. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How will we know if someone's a false prophet, not telling the truth? God says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Well, that's pretty simple. So if a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true, then it's not of the Lord, he's a false prophet. Easy enough. But this is of great importance, gang. Even today, as people claim prophetic insight and vision, understand this. Every legitimate prophet of God prophesied specific things both in the immediate future and also in the distant future. Because you could take what God said about if the thing is spoken about does not happen or does not come true. Well, there were things Isaiah prophesied that did not happen in his lifetime. That only happened later. So how are the people to really believe that Isaiah was a prophet? Every major prophet of the Lord not only prophesied the future, they prophesied something that would happen immediately. And when it happened immediately, the people could go, he's legitimate. He is a prophet of the Lord. Same thing today. If someone says, yeah, something, blah, 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 Lord is giving me this vision, this picture, and it's going to happen, you know, in 40 years. Well, great. I need something a little more, more, more close to that hand here. Something measurable. The Lord doesn't leave us hanging out there. He gives measurable prophecies. Measurable and immediate. The validity, validity gang of future prophecies was always measurable by the validity of immediate prophecies, the fulfillment of immediate, immediate prophecies. So in Jesus' example, Jesus, as the prophet, gave immediate prophecies. We talked about last week the fig tree. Jesus looks at that silly little fig tree and he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. It was a prophecy. Because the next day when they came back, the fig tree was shriveled up and dead. And the prophecy was fulfilled. Immediate fulfillment. You go, wow, there's something to that. I was telling my kids about this just the other day. I was saying to Corey, you know, Corey, if I told you that when I picked you up from school on Tuesday, that it was going to be raining, that the car would be blue, and that a man was going to walk up and give you a hot piping cheese pizza, and it happened, would you think that maybe I have the gift of prophecy? And Corey's like, cheese pizza? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but that was the way it was done. God gave immediate fulfillment so that people could see this is a legitimate prophet. And then there were long distance fulfillments. Isaiah would prophesy about something that happened 150 years later. The name of Cyrus. Cyrus from Babylon who would allow the people to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. Even the name, it's interesting, is given. I'm going to send my servant Cyrus. 150 years later, Cyrus comes along and gives the Jews the right to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's a long-term prophecy. But Isaiah was legitimized by short-term prophecies in his lifetime. The donkey's colt. Jesus knew. He told his guys, go into Jerusalem. You're going to see a donkey's colt over on the side there. Go up to the men and take the colt and bring it to me. And if they ask what it's for, say, hey, the master is in need of it. And they'll let you bring the colt. So the apostles, they go in. There's the colt. They begin to take it. The guys go, hey, what are you doing? The master's in need of it. Okay, take the colt. And off they go. Immediate prophecy. How did Jesus know these things? And he was always doing that. One of the true joys, honestly, of reading through the Gospels is watching Jesus know things and freak people out. He knew what was on people's minds. He knew what was going to happen the next day or the day after that. 
and he would express these things from time to time and it legitimizes Jesus as a great prophet it IDs him as the prophet shortly after his death you know there was a fulfillment of an amazing prophecy in Matthew 24 that is the fall of Jerusalem Jesus died AD 33, 34 somewhere in there and in AD 70 just almost 40 years after his death Jerusalem falls exactly as he said it would happen not one stone would be left upon another of the temple and it wasn't as Jesus said and we see that immediate fulfillment just past his lifetime and we say alright there's something to this man Jesus as a prophet something legitimate here but gang more than all the rest the most amazing fulfilled prophecy of Jesus Christ was of his own death and imminent resurrection listen to his words Matthew chapter 20 verse 17 as Jesus was going it was about to go up to Jerusalem he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them behold we're going up to Jerusalem now listen to the specificity the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him to scourge him and to crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up it was so clear you ever find yourself in that situation with the Lord where you're saying Lord if you just be clear with me and the apostles did the same thing he explained this to them and they didn't get it even when it happened they were scratching their heads wondering how Jesus could have been crucified and yet it was only days before that he said I'm going to be crucified here's exactly what's going to happen let me, let me lay it out for you he told them exactly what he was going to do what was going to happen to them and they didn't get it I think God does that in our lives I think he lets us know more than we realize but we're just not paying attention or the faith is weak or we can't believe that this is really of God and he sits up there going I'm doing all these great things for you are you paying attention by the way that's why myrrh is the gift for a prophet because myrrh is what you would give to a dead man and Jesus among all the prophets is the one who prophesied with perfect precision his own death and his resurrection and myrrh being a burial spice is the perfect gift to give to Jesus the anointed prophet Jesus is also the anointed high priest although he enacted the perfect sacrifice of redemption with his own blood not the blood of an animal Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption Jesus is the anointed prophet he's the anointed high priest and most of all he's the anointed king Revelation 17:14 He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful and that's the centerpiece of this last section go back to Revelation 11 the last section of Revelation 11 is the centerpiece of the coronation of the king now understanding that this great coronation you would ask the obvious question are you saying that this is the moment when Jesus comes to reign we're only at the midpoint of the tribulation how can this be how can this timing work here read on a little further verse 16 the 24 elders again who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God verse 17 saying we give thanks O Lord God the Almighty who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants the prophets and the saints 
and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Is this the second coming right here at this point? Well, it can't be. It can't be. And we know that because you start in chapter 12 and there's a great um, parenthetical teaching there. And we go on and a lot of things still are going to happen before chapter 19 when Jesus truly is seen returning to the earth to judge. So what's the deal with this? How, how does this? Why this coronation here? And what does this mean? Listen closely here. This is one of those parenthetical chapters. Remember chapter that's in a parenthesis where John is saying something that is going to take place or will take place at a time soon to come. But it's one of those passages in the book of Revelation that people will use to argue for the mid-tribulation rapture. That the church is around all through this first half, the first three and a half years. We're present on the earth until this mid-tribulation point and then right here see the seventh angel sounds he blows a trumpet that's the last trumpet would the the mid-tribulationist would say that's the last trumpet the trumpet sounds and the kingdom becomes Christ that's when the rapture happens there are a lot of problems with this perspective let me give you a few number one the seventh trumpet which is also called the third woe clearly and literally sounds after the second woe is passed What do you mean? Well, people look at the two witnesses. Verse 12. Go back to verse 12 and look. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now there are those who would say, That's the church. The two witnesses are a representation of the church. And they try to tie in verse 12 with then verse 15, and then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Problem is, the two witnesses are caught up at the end of the second woe, The trumpet is the third woe. The trumpet comes after. So that would mean that if the rapture is mid-tribulation, that the trumpet blast happens after we go. Go first and then the trumpet sounds, which Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet sounds and then we go, not we go and then the trumpet sounds. See that? So there's a little problem right there. Furthermore, the seventh trumpet does not announce the calling out of the ambassadors. It announces the coronation of the king. It's not about people being called out by this trumpet, as again Paul described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's about the king coming in. It's a recognition of his authority, his reign, not of his ambassadors being pulled out. Also, by the way, we've been now several chapters without a single mention of the church. We talked about this before. Chapters 2 and 3 talks about the church, the church, the church. It's mentioned over and over and over that those two chapters are full of the church. But you get past that and from chapter 4 on all the way up to where we are right now, look for it. You will not find a single mention of the church. It's not there. It's not present. Finally, remember the simple question we've asked many times. Does the Bible assure believers that they will be kept out of the tribulation period? And the answer is Yes. Yes. And we have seen all the way up to the blowing of the sixth trumpet a great degree of tribulation. And yet Revelation 3.10 tells us, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That word from is the Greek word ek. It's literally out of. If you keep my word of, of perseverance, I will keep you out of the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The seventh trumpet sounds, but gang, it's not the trumpet of the rapture. How do we know for sure? 
Because the last trumpet of God is not the seventh trumpet of an angel. The rapture is tied to the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. The last trumpet sounds. But the last trumpet that Paul talks about is the trumpet of God, not the trumpet of an angel. And very clearly, verse 15 tells us the seventh angel sounded. There's a difference. There's a clear distinction there. You can check that out. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and 17. Now, what is this last trumpet that Paul talks about in those two passages? Very quickly, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 reminds us, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. The last trumpet, and this is just review, is his voice. It's the voice of God. It is not a trumpet of an angel. So that alone, at least to my understanding, my simple-minded thinking, puts to rest the whole issue of, is the seventh trumpet the, the trumpet of the rapture? The trumpet of the rapture is the trumpet of God's spoken word, His voice, not of an angel blowing on a horn. Now, look at verse 15 again. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven speaking. Some will argue that verse 15, and I'm getting really hot, so someone turn the thing off. How long are we going to wait? <laughs> Thank you, Russ. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's cold outside when I'm walking over here. I do. <laughs> I'm not even going to respond to that. No. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree or agree because either one's going to get me in trouble. Yeah, Joe, your wife's hot. Okay. All right, back to it. Verse 15. Some will argue that verse 15 clearly states that the kingdom of Christ has come. Read the whole thing. The trumpet sounds and, and we hear this voice or these voices saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and people will say here it is the kingdom of Christ has come therefore the rapture must happen here let's be technical for just a second here this phrase the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord is written in the Greek but I want to jot this down and press your friends in the aorist active indicative you got that? The aorist active indicative. What does that mean? It literally is rendered this. The kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of Christ. In the Greek language, it's not has become. It is, is becoming. It's in process. In other words, the door is open, gang. The kingdom is on its way. God's rule is now that much closer. The kingdom is becoming the kingdom of Christ. But why this coronation here? If this truly is a coronation of the king, and boy, it reads like it, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like it? Boy, the, the elders, they hit their knees, they're worshiping, they're praising, and the king is coming, and the kingdom is coming. Why this coronation right here at this midpoint of the tribulation and not at the end? Oh, it's, it's at the end. It's also at the beginning. But hold on to that thought just a moment longer. Something else to consider about this whole section here 
and is talking about what is taking place is one of those proleptic phrases or proleptic teachings in the Bible. Proleptic, great. Aorist, indicative, active, proleptic. Okay, there's a different language. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53 just for a moment. Ah. Isaiah 53. A proleptic phrase. Look it up in your Merriam-Webster dictionary. The word proleptic simply means something that is going to happen that is so absolutely certain it's spoken of as if it's already happened. It's absolutely certain to occur. And you see this several times in the book of Revelation as in other places. Isaiah 53 is a great example of that. Who has believed our message, Isaiah writes? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, hang on a second. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. We know that. It's obvious. We understand Isaiah 53. It's that great prophet, prophetic chapter about Jesus. But listen to how Isaiah is writing. He grew up past tense before him. Jesus wasn't even born yet. It'd be centuries before Jesus came along, and yet Isaiah's writing as if it's already happened. Why? Because it's so absolutely sure to happen. Proleptic phrase. Going on. Verse 3. He was despised, past tense, and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, past tense, and our sorrows he carried, again, past tense. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. These are all past tense phrases here. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When, Isaiah? When did that happen? It hadn't happened yet. But it's so absolutely sure to happen, Isaiah writes it from the perspective of God, who gang had seen it happen. Remember God outside of time. In the moment Isaiah is prophesying this, God at the same moment he's telling Isaiah to write this, is watching it happen. Well, that's a little overwhelming. That whole outside of time thing just blows my mind. Okay, let's make it real simple. The Rose Parade. Rose Parade is going on, it's going down the streets of Pasadena, and you can sit on the street corner and watch the Rose Parade as it goes by, one float at a time. And you know other floats are coming, but they're not there yet, but you're watching it one float at a time. Or you can hop in the Goodyear blimp, and you can float above and watch the whole parade happen all at once. That's how simple it is. God sees the whole thing, not bound by sitting on the curb like we are. Time to us is sitting on the curb. But God's outside of that and sees it all happening at once. And so as Isaiah is prophesying, God is watching Jesus on the cross. Which is how, and it's amazing, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross not only works forward for those of us who came after Jesus, but works backward for those who had faith in God before Jesus. The blood is effective for anyone, either direction, who believes in the Lord. Cool. Proleptic phrase. There are a few more examples of that. Things that are absolutely certain to happen, even though they haven't yet. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, you and I, he also glorified. Okay, I have moments where I might approach glory. At least in my own puffed up ego. But most of the time, glorified? Would you describe yourself as glorified? 
game. I've said this before, but just take a peek in the mirror in the morning. You know you're not glorified. It hasn't happened yet. But Paul said, those he called, he glorified. It's a done deal. I am a glorified person. Though I may not look at it right now. Why? Because proleptically it is so absolutely sure to happen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You didn't know that this was the heavenly places, did you? Folding chairs in a barn. Welcome to heaven. But it's so absolutely sure from God's perspective. You know, and this is to blow your mind a little bit more. The Lord can see you in heaven eternally right now. You're there. So sure is our salvation in Christ Jesus, gang. We're there from God's perspective. I'm still here from mine, sitting on the curb, watching the parade go by, wondering when he's going to pull me up to the blimp, but one day I'm going to be there, and it's going to be a whole lot better than just a blimp. And so this whole idea, back in Revelation 11, about the coronation of the king, the kingdom of the world is becoming the kingdom of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The nations were enraged, verse 18, your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged came, and to reward the bondservants. All of these things going on here speak of something that you can absolutely take to the bank. It's not quite happening yet. It's coming close. It's almost there. But it is so absolutely sure to happen that right here in the middle of the tribulation, boom, the Lord gives this picture. The the angels, the, the 24 elders in heaven, they begin to praise and say hallelujah for the things that are becoming, that are about to happen. Now Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christos in the Greek, Yeshua HaMashiach in the Hebrew, the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king, and the kingdom of the world is becoming the kingdom of Christ is what's going on here. But this is interesting to me. And consider this. Just as Jesus holds these three positions, there are three coronations in the book of Revelation. Go back to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Beginning about verse 9, and listen to the similarity. Verse 9 telling us that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Does the reign begin in that moment? No. No, it hasn't happened yet. But it will, absolutely. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and living creatures, and the elders, and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and honor, honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped here at the beginning, actually right before the beginning of the tribulation period, we had the coronation. The coronation of Jesus. But then flip over to Revelation 19. All the way to the other end, at the very end, the tail end of the tribulation period. 
we have now the third coronation. The first one in Revelation 5, the second one in Revelation 11, and now Revelation 19 verse 1. After these things, John writes, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And here go the elders. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, verse 7, and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Ready. I mean, you can almost hear the coronation chorus as it rises up for the coming of Jesus, and the rest of Revelation 19 is awesome. We'll get there. Hang with me. We'll get there. But it's a third coronation of the King. Why three coronations? One at the beginning of the tribulation, one in the middle of the tribulation, one at the end. Why three times? is the anointed king coronated. You might think about it this way. The first coronation is the coronation of the great high priest. The priest. The coronation of the priest. Why? Because that's when the lamb who was slain is worthy to break the seals. The lamb whose blood was given, whose blood was poured out, as in the high priest who would give of his own blood to save the people. The first coronation is the coronation of the priest. The second coronation, giving at the midpoint of the tribulation, the coronation of the prophet. He will reign. The kingdom of the world is becoming the kingdom of Christ. It's the absolute certainty of prophecy given right in the middle. The coronation of the prophet. Hang in there. Things are shaken. It's tough. But the king is coming. And then the third coronation at the end of the tribulation is the coronation of the king. The actual coming of Jesus to rule and to reign from Jerusalem. He comes as priest, as prophet, as king to rule. Three coronations, three roles of Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king. But there's one more thing here that's really cool. Flip in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 41. Matthew 22:41. Keeping these three coronations of Jesus in mind, three coronations in the Revelation, Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, in good Jewish form, the son of David. <laughs> I get the picture right there, there, there of them looking at each other, you know, patting each other on the back. Good answer. Yeah. You know, kind of like us when I throw out a question and no one's sure and everybody knows the answer but no one wants to say it in case you might be wrong. And someone does and I say, yes, that's it. And everybody goes, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what's happening here. Whose son is he? The son of David. Yeah, good answer. Okay. And he said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? <laughs> Mind blower. If he's his son, how does he call him Lord? Verse 44, he says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) Jesus was the best. Man, to sit at his feet. When we get to heaven, when we get to just sit in his presence and listen to him tell stories and be taught by Jesus himself, man, nothing we experience teaching-wise on planet Earth will come close to how wonderful that will be. We're all just going to be going... (laughs) So amazing. Did you get that? I never thought that. It was amazing. When they praise and go, tell us another story. I want to hear another parable. Tell us the one about David. You know, when you stumped the Pharisees. That was great. And so here he throws this out about David. How can David call his son his Lord if he's truly his son? Now, you and I know the answer to this. It's very easy. Of course, we have hindsight. We can look back and go, well, he calls him his Lord because Jesus came before him and after him. He is his Lord. The son of David also happens to be the root of David. David comes from him, even though he comes from David. I mean, it's mind-boggling, but it's wonderful. Jesus being God, he is David's Lord. We get this. But what does this have to do with these three coronations of Jesus in the book of Revelation? It's interesting. Because David's anointing as king is recorded in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. We won't read it tonight, but you can check that out. David was but a ruddy shepherd boy. And Samuel comes. Some of you may recall the story. Samuel shows up and begins to want to anoint each one, one at a time, all of his older brothers, because they look kingly. Until finally, none of the brothers are right. The Lord every time says, nope, not this one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not this one. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, David's dad, do you have any more sons? Well, it's David. He's out in the fields with the sheep. Bring him in. Brought him in. And the Lord said, he's the one. He's the one I pick. And so the prophet Samuel anoints David as a boy, anoints him to be king. But it's not the only time David was anointed. We're told he was anointed a second time years later in 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4. He is anointed as king over Judah. The people of Judah come in and they say, yes, David, you are our king. And then David was anointed a third time in 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 3 when Israel accepted him as king. Three coronations, three moments of anointing. All told, David is anointed three times, just as we see the son of David anointed, coronated three times in the book of Revelation. Oh, it's just one of those coincidences. Okay? Gang, the point is clear. The king is coming. The king is coming, King Jesus. And he will reign and he has begun to reign. He's already started his reign in your heart, hasn't he? Is he not your king? Don't you want to fall to your knees just when you hear the name of Jesus spoken? Just when we begin to sing and worship, don't you just think, Oh, come now, my king. We sang this morning that song, Nothing But the Blood. Thank you for your blood, King Jesus. King Jesus. King Jesus. I'll just read this to you. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation saying, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. He's talking about Jerusalem. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and all her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And then I will cause the horn, or authority, the horn of David to spring forth. 
I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed, for mine Mashiach. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. The king is coming. The king is coming. Which is important for us to understand. Especially when the days are bad. When times are tough. Remember that at this point in the tribulation, that this is halfway through. That there are people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who are about to face the most dreaded persecution any Christian in the history of the planet has or will ever face. They're going to come up against Antichrist and they will be given a choice. Deny your faith in Jesus or lose your head and they will be martyred for their faith. It's going to be an intense, awful, terrible time for those alive in Christ during the, crucif- the tribulation, those who are still surviving the tribulation, And I think it's absolutely wonderful that here at the midpoint of the tribulation, God gives them hope. He reminds them, He tells them, the kingdom is coming. It's coming. Hang in there three and a half more years. I need to hear that some days. The king is coming. Okay. I can get through today. I can get through today. Maureen, I'm going to embarrass you, but I will never forget this. Several years ago at the first teaching through of of the Revelation study, and Eric and Marie were coming to that then. We were meeting over in Anacortes in a little building there and talking. And I'll never forget having a conversation with her after the fact. We were talking about the rapture. And for those of you who don't know, Marie's struggled with MS for years. Some days are really hard. And I'll never forget her saying, but you know what? Just the thought. All I have to do is, is say to Eric, tell me that the rapture could happen today. And if he'll tell me that, I can get through the day. Why, Marine? Because she knows the king is coming. He's coming for her. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. And it's absolutely sure the kingdom of Christ is becoming the kingdom of the world. And we are watching it happen bit by bit, person by person, Spencer by Spencer. It's happening. We're seeing it go on among us. Now, back to chapter 11. Don't go home quite yet. Oh, by the way, the people that John wrote to, he wrote to in a time of incredible persecution, didn't he? How encouraging for them to read the same thing. Pastor John is pastoring his people, and he's saying, the kingdom is coming. It's coming. Hang in there. It may be tough, but the king is on his way. Now, the very last verse, and look at this. It's amazing. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his Temple. Now stop right there. You may recall that Revelation chapter 11 began with the assumption of a literal temple on earth during the time of the tribulation because John is told to go measure it. Go measure the temple. So we assume, we understand, there's going to be a temple standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem during the tribulation. But now chapter 11 ends with a picture of the literal temple, the true temple, the temple in heaven. Starts with the one on earth, ends with the one in heaven. And John's eyes here, he is fixed again on heaven. Remember, location is important as you study Revelation. You want to know where you're at at all times. John is now seeing the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And what does he see? The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. The ark of the covenant. Where is that ark? That thing's been missing for a long time. 
A long time. Now, turn in your Bibles back to Second Chronicles. And I want to consider this just for a moment. Because it's so fascinating. that This whole idea of the lost ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Whatever happened to it, where is it? Do we know where it might be hidden today? And there are some interesting implications here in Scripture. Second Chronicles, chapter 35, beginning of verse 1, where we find the last mention in Scripture of the Ark of the Covenant. Here it is. Second Chronicles 35, verse 1. <clears throat> Then Josiah, King Josiah, one of my favorite kings of Israel, one of the few kings of Israel who actually did a good job. Then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. He also said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. That's interesting. That phrase, in fact, rabbis have argued over and and, and debated what it truly means. This phrase in verse 3, that the Ark of the Covenant, he says, put it into the house which Solomon built. Okay, we're talking about the temple. But he says, so that it will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Apparently, up to this point, in the reign of several of the kings over, over Judah here, the Ark was on the move. The ark was not kept in the temple where it should have been, where it was supposed to be. But because maybe of the threat of invading armies or other nations coming against Israel possibly, the ark must have been on the move. The Levites carrying it from place to place to place to keep it out of the hands of marauders or attacking nations who would come upon Israel. But gang, here in around 621 B.C., Josiah makes this proclamation. Bring the ark back. Let's give it a permanent resting place. Put it in the temple. Put it in the temple of Solomon. 621 B.C. It would be 40 years or so later in 586 B.C. that Babylon invades. Babylon comes in and Solomon's temple where the ark was brought some 40 years earlier under King Josiah. The ark should be there. But now suddenly... The temple is destroyed. The first temple that we talked about last week, the week before. That first temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now look over in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 15. A couple pages over. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he, the Lord, he, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, watch verse 18, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then... 
They burned down the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, which by the way is modern day Iran, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And so the question we ask, we see Josiah brings the ark in 2 Chronicles 35, brings the ark back into the temple. Forty years later, the temple is destroyed. Babylon comes in. Nebuchadnezzar has all of the articles of the temple, great and small, carried off and taken to Babylon. Was the ark among them? Was it possibly taken to Babylon? Did these vessels talked about here, these articles include the ark? Again, there has been endless debate about this. So I just want to take a couple more minutes tonight and see if we can figure this out. What happened to the ark? Well, let's join Indiana Jones just for a few minutes. <laughs> and be raiders of the lost ark. Dang, people have been fascinated with this subject for centuries. Ever since the disappearance, and people aren't sure where to go. Hitler was an absolute nut on the subject of the ark. Of holy articles. Hitler, and, and the whole thing about Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that is based somewhat, there's a little bit of, of truth to it, that Hitler did during the Second World War. He was sending out digs. He was looking all over the place to try and find the Ark because he thought, if I can get my hands on that Ark, man, that can go before the Nazis and will rule militarily with the power of the Ark. It shows how little he understood the Lord and the power that was contained there. But that's where Spielberg and Lucas got their idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark. But there's another interesting prophecy, and I'll read this to you. In fact, there are a few that we'll look at quickly here that might indicate the whereabouts of the Ark. Jeremiah 27, verse 21, says the following. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be carried away to Babylon and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So indication that until the day of God's visitation, these things taken to Babylon would remain there until he restored them. But again, does the praise the vessels here include the ark? Let me give you just a few theories, and there are so many out there we could spend probably weeks talking about all of them. But one theory is that the ark of the covenant may yet be in an antechamber, a secret hiding place beneath the temple mount in the temple of Solomon. Now, if you go to Israel, you'll you'll learn this quickly that Jerusalem is just. It's just one generation built up on top of another. Every time an army invaded, they would wipe it out and they build right on top of the remains. When the Temple of Solomon was completely broken down, they just built right on top of that and on top of that. So there are remains of the Temple of Solomon deep in the ground underneath. Some have been located. Interesting that back in 1996... 1996, the Jerusalem Post had an, argument, had an article written by Abraham Rabinovich... I'm going to quote a little bit from it. It says that in 1982, one of the most dramatic Jewish-Arab confrontations in post-Six-Day War Jerusalem occurred in the tunnel. What tunnel? I've talked about this recently, but there is a tunnel that you can actually go in in Jerusalem called the Rabbi's Tunnel. It's called the Rabbi's Tunnel because a couple of rabbis were the ones who found it 
to a place called Warren's Gate. And this rabbi's tunnel, this secret tunnel, it runs along the western wall and goes deep underneath and follows a path down in there. We were just talking about it a little earlier this afternoon. Cheryl hated it because we got about three-fourths of the way and the, and the guide said, okay, the end of it comes out in the Muslim quarter. It's night. We don't want to come out there right now, so let's go back. And so we had to go back and go walking the same way and then, you, know, you start to get a little claustrophobic in there. And then, of course, people are coming the other direction. So you've got to get by them. I see you. That's lovely. Okay. And, you know, you're moving along. But this rabbi's tunnel is fascinating. The article goes on and says, Rabbi Yehuda Meir Getz, the rabbi of the Western Wall, the only one, by the way, who was ever an official rabbi over the Western Wall, because it was a period of time, month and a half, that they had sovereignty, the Jews actually had sovereignty. This rabbi Getz, who was a colorful personality and would pray alone each morning inside the tunnel at a point opposite what he presumed to have been the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount. It's still there to this day. There are people, if you go in the tunnel, you will find Jews praying at that place where they believe directly across from it, underneath all the layers, is the Holy of Holies. And that, by the way, is to Jews who pray, is the holiest place to pray in Jerusalem. Not the Western Wall, but in the Rabbi's Tunnel at this particular location. But it was told, that, or the story goes on, that one day Arabs on the mount heard banging from one of its cisterns underneath. When they entered the cistern, they found that Jewish workmen under Rabbi Get's supervision had partially broken through an ancient gateway dubbed Warren's Gate between the ministry tunnel and the innards of the Temple Mount itself. In a subterranean scene witnessed by reporters, police separated the two sides who were on the verge of blows, Muslims and Jews, ready to go at it in the Rabbi's Tunnel, and government officials alerted to the explosiveness of the situation hastily ordered the opening resealed and its remaining and it remains closed to this day and you can see it it's sealed up right there and the tour guide when you go through the, the rabbi's tunnel will tell you right there that's where they have broken in rabbi gets and there was another rabbi too who the two of them who had been working on this for years wanted to break in and see what was down there now here's the interesting thing when Solomon built the first temple he did build underneath a maze of tunnels there are antechambers and secret places beneath that first temple that Solomon built there in case of an attack on Jerusalem. So when Babylon attacked, is it possible? Could they have quickly taken the ark down into those tunnels and buried it in an antechamber to, to protect it, to keep it safe? It's absolutely pro, uh, possible. And here's the thing. Rabbi Getz, who's reputable, he's passed away now, but he was a scholarly, reputable man. He claimed to have caught a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. He claimed he saw it. Something that so absolutely resembled the Ark, it had to be the Ark, but then, as you know, as I just read the story, it got shut down. So the Ark could very well be under the Temple Mount. There's one possibility for you. Here's another one. It may be in Ireland. <laughs> Ireland. Yes, Ireland. In 584 B.C., there are some records that speak of a man who was simply called Olam Fodla. It's a great name. Olam Fodla, which simply means Holy Prophet. Holy Prophet. A man called Holy Prophet from 584 B.C. who claimed to have the Ark in his possession. Now this was only two years after the Ark disappeared or after the temple was destroyed in 586. So two years later, suddenly there's, there's this holy prophet guy who claims to have the ark in his possession. And some people believe that Olam Fodla, holy prophet, is none other than Jeremiah. That at the time, Jeremiah 
took hold of the ark and brought it with him, got it out of there, took it from Jerusalem and took it to the west and ended up in Ireland. That he actually carried the ark there to save it from Babylon. And interesting to this day in Ulster, Ireland, there is a place known as a cave known as Jeremiah's Cairn. The great Irish word cairn. Jeremiah's Cairn. And this place, actually, people believe in these subterranean regions that have not fully been explored. Some believe the ark is down there. That Jeremiah, the holy prophet, the Olam Fodla, actually brought it down there. Oh, you can't be serious, Rick. Well, British royalty take it very seriously. British royalty believe that's exactly where the ark is. To this day. That's where they believe that it is stored. And this theory, by the way, I mentioned to you because it's gaining some popularity, especially those among those who believe in British-Israelism. We talked about it earlier in, in our study, the whole idea that the British and then the Americans by extension are the lost tribes of the ten northern tribes of Israel. I'm not going to go into it because basically it's bunk. But there are people who believe that. And, they, and in believing that, they think, yeah, the ark must be there in Ireland. Is that the true location? Not according to 2 Maccabees. Okay? I know you're going with me on this one. The Ark, according to 2 Maccabees. What's 2 Maccabees? Those of you who know, it's some of the apocryphal writings. The books that, if you have a Catholic Bible, it'd be in the Catholic Bible. Now, it's not in my Bible. It doesn't mean it's a bad book, but it's probably not inspired. And yet it does have some foundational historical bearing to it. And I'm going to read you just a verse out of 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 4, that says the following. The prophet, being warned of God, commanded the tabernacle and the ark go with him. This is talking about Moses. That the ark go with him as he went forth into the mountain where Moses climbed up. Oh no, sorry, it's not talking about Moses. It's talking about the prophet, again, Jeremiah. That he was warned of God, took the ark with him as he went forth to the mountain where Moses climbed up and saw the heritage of God. Where's that? It's Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo in Jordan today. So there's who, who, there are people who believe, based on 2 Maccabees, oh, that Jeremiah or another prophet took the ark at that dangerous time up into Mount Nebo where Moses saw the inheritance of God and buried the ark there. So there are those who believe the ark may be hidden in Jordan on Mount Nebo to this day. Now, there is a biblical connection to this that's kind of interesting because for hundreds of years the Samaritans believed that. The Samaritans absolutely believed that the Ark of the Covenant was on a mountain in Samaria, which would be present-day Jordan. Let me read you this uh, scripture connection. John uh, chapter 4, verse 19. A woman speaking to Jesus, the woman at the well. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. She speaks to Jesus and says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain... And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see, there was a temple built by the Samaritans on Mount Nebo that they used as their holy temple. And the Samaritans believed it was over the, over the place, the spot where the Ark of the Covenant was buried. And so they felt that their temple was a legitimate one, not the one in Jerusalem. So the argument went back and forth. The Samaritans saying, you should worship on this holy mountain, Mount Nebo, where Moses died, where Moses saw the inheritance. This is the place where you should worship. And the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, and you Jews say it should be in Jerusalem. What did Jesus say? He says, and I quote, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will wor you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
God is spirit, Jesus says. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not Mount Nebo. It's not even Jerusalem. It's the heart. It's the spirit. That's where true worship happens. And by the way, tuck this away, but it's a key to the true location of the ark. This is key to the true location of the ark. So, the Temple Mount, Ireland, Jordan, some say the Vatican. That the ark was taken to Rome and it's hidden in the Vatican. Why would they say this? Well, there's some historical reason for this. That people say that when Titus came back, that he brought back all of these implements, all of these, these vessels from the temple, including the lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant. Why do they say that? You can go to Rome today and look at the Arch of Titus. On the Arch of Titus, which is an arch that was you know, constructed for his glorious return after destroying Jerusalem, on the arch are pictures of pieces of the temple that were being carried in by Titus's men as they came in their grand and glorious, victorious march home. And on the picture, there is a menorah. And on the picture, there is the Ark of the Covenant. And so there are those who would say, well, see, it's carved right here in stone that when Titus came back from destroying the temple in AD 70, they found the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it back to Rome. And it's in the Vatican to this day hidden down deep belief beneath and the Catholics they know where it is that Pope he knows where the ark's hidden and he's going to bring it out at just the right time in history there's a little problem with this historically if you look at the arch of Titus what you'll see and it's interesting to note is on the lampstand that is carved on the arch of Titus I've only seen pictures I haven't actually seen it in person but in the pictures what you'll see is an octagonal base and on the lampstand on that base there are carvings of animals. First of all, no Jew would carve an image on the lampstand because they were commanded, you shall have no graven images. And secondly, to have an animal on the lampstand at all, it it wasn't prescribed by the Lord. You can read in the book of Exodus exactly what the lampstand was supposed to look like and it does not include carvings of animals. So there's a problem right there. Did they really have the actual lampstand? Some think that what Titus brought back from Jerusalem were clever deceptions, clever decoys that the priests had in place and that the true pieces of the temple, if they didn't melt, were again hidden away in those antechambers beneath the temple mount. Is this the location of the ark, the Vatican? Probably not. So what is it? One more and I'll I'll give you and then we'll, we'll finish up here. The ark of the covenant, some believe is located actually directly under Calvary. Buried deep down under Golgotha. Ron Wyatt, who some of you have have seen some of his claims, and he's claimed many things from, from finding chariot wheels in the Red Sea. We actually saw a video on that last year. To finding Noah's Ark. This guy is, is an Indiana Jones just kind of character himself. And he says he has found the Ark of the Covenant. He believes he knows right where it is. Underneath Calvary. Why? Well, part of his thinking is good. When Jesus was crucified, Wyatt says his blood would have dripped down into a crevice. And there is a crevice, a a huge crack that's up on top of Calvary that runs some 30 feet down. Further, has never been explored. But this Jesus' blood could have flowed directly down that crack and sprinkled onto the mercy seat, which would have interesting implications for the blood, bring, you know, the blood of atonement being sprinkled on the mercy seat, that that actually happened. And this place, this crack that's still there today is called Jeremiah's Grotto. 
Why Jeremiah's grotto? Well, similar to Ireland, Jeremiah's cairn, there are those who believe that Jeremiah took the ark and hid it there. And it ended up being directly under Calvary in this cave, where Wyatt, among others, believes is the actual place that Jeremiah hid the ark of the covenant. Is this true? I don't know. <laughs> there are so many theories, and if you get online and just start looking them up, there are dozens and dozens of theories about where the ark is located, and I found the ark, or they don't have it, we have it over here, and, and it's, a lot of it is just, it's just chasing the wind. Here's the thing. We know exactly, exactly where the Ark of the Covenant is located. Revelation 11.19 tells us, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple. The treasure hunt goes on and on, but the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. Now, wait, Rick, are you saying this is the actual ark that Moses had made? No, not necessarily, although that theory has been put forth too. That at a certain point in history, God just said, they're not going to have the ark anymore, and whoop, he caught it up to heaven, and he has it in heaven now. The only problem with that is Hebrews 11.5 tells us that the tabernacle and all that it contained was but a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. And we've talked about this before, that the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat is a fantastic, wonderful picture of the throne room of heaven itself. Of the throne of the actual Mercy Seat, which would be the throne of God. And that the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant are just a picture, a shadow of the true cherubim who fly above the throne of heaven praising God uh, continually. So, is it the actual Ark? I don't think it is. But back to our question, will the Ark of the Covenant that Moses had constructed ever be found on planet Earth? And the answer to, to me is probably not. But it doesn't matter because the Bible tells us something even better is coming. This is the last verse, I believe. Is it the last verse? No, okay, a couple more, good. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16 says the following. It shall be in those days, when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, that they will no longer say, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord! And it will not come to mind. Nor will they remember it. Nor will they miss it. Nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor they, will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. Gang, the ark is only a symbol. It's a picture. It's a type of the real thing. And God understands something about human emotion and about the human heart. What's that? God knows that we have a tendency to chase after the type instead of the real thing. We have a tendency to get drawn to the picture or the symbol as opposed to the real thing. The type gets in the way of the reality. But we don't need to find the Ark of the Covenant. What we need to do is find the reality who is Jesus Christ. And our faith in the coming King who again is Jesus Christ. But we're left with an interesting picture here tonight. At the end of chapter 11, here's the Ark. The ark in heaven. The ark, that greatest treasure. That treasure that's sought after by all these treasure hunters over time. Trying to find those raiders of the lost ark. Trying to find the ark of the covenant. But here it is, this treasure, the treasure of all the Jews. The thing that all oh, they long to have so they can have it back in the temple. This treasure is in heaven. It's in heaven. It's in heaven. 
What does that mean for us? Simply this. The treasure is not on earth. It's in heaven and that's our key. Jesus said an hour is coming, John 4.23, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus says in Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There your heart will be. The treasure. The Ark of the Covenant. The temple of God is opened in heaven. And the Ark is there. The treasure is there. And that's where our hearts, that's where our hearts need to be. Where the treasure is in heaven. Whatever we're chasing after, whatever treasure we seek or we hunt, whatever it is in the world that we long for more than anything else, dang, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we get this wonderful glimpse, this great reminder of the Ark of the Covenant seen by John in heaven that the Ark and its mercy seat is only as important as it points us heavenward toward Jesus. It's the attitude I believe the Lord wants us to have. The seventh trumpet blows. And also, by the way, the seventh trumpet is the third woe. The last half of this verse tells us there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now this is a great chapter. But remember, again, there will be those alive in Christ during the time of the tribulation. They're going to have this to read and it will be encouraging. There were those who were alive at John's day during great persecution of the church then. And for them, it was greatly encouraging. But for you and I, as I said before, things may be bad. Life may be hard. It may get harder. But the King is coming. He is coming absolutely. Can we embrace that thought tonight? If there's any thought you take home from the end of this study, let it be that thought. The King is coming. Life is hard, but Jesus is Lord. And He is on the way.